At AGI, we take grain bin safety seriously. With Bin Manager, from the convenience of your smartphone, you can know the condition of stored grain without having to climb a ladder or stairs to monitor temperature and moisture. AGI Bin Manager is fully automated, meaning you can trust that grain is safe and in condition without returning to the bin to turn on or off fans and heaters. With advanced algorithms to optimize fan and heater controls, you can be confident that your hard-earned harvest will be in condition when it is time to sell. Find AGI Bin Manager at aggrowth.com digital. Hi, I'm Caitlin Dubin, and this is the Rural Woman Podcast. I'm a first-generation farmer who married into agriculture. Born and raised in a city, I was so unfamiliar with where my food came from, but I was determined to figure it out. Through my journey into agriculture, I saw women who were strong but humble, often taking a back seat. To me, these women were leaders who deserved a seat at the table. I created the Rural Woman Podcast to share the voices of women in an industry whose stories often went untold. The rural entrepreneurs who live and breathe their work, full of grit and pride. We come here to share our stories, to be in community with each other, to be challenged and inspired, but most importantly, to be celebrated and to be heard. We may not all live, farm, ranch or homestead the same, but we are all connected. We are rural women and our stories are worthy of being told. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. This week, you'll meet Suzette Chomet. Suzette is a health communication scientist with over 25 years of international and domestic experience and the founder of Food Indie, all about food independence. She is a worm farmer, fourth-generation backyard gardener, and a home chef. You might find her at a local estate sale or trying to figure out how to turn old things into new ones. She is a public speaker and also the co-host of the Positively Green podcast. Suzette has also recently joined us over in the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network and Mastermind, so I wanted to formally welcome her to what our members affectionately call the PFM fam, the Positively Farming Media family. We are so grateful to get to all work together and amplify the voices and stories in the food and agriculture space through our podcast network. If you know Suzette personally or you follow her on social media, you know that she is a great advocate for all things environmentally friendly, reusable, sustainable, all of the things. And she has been a great help for me in making my home and my garden and even my field meals a little bit more eco-friendly. So throughout the years, I have been figuring out different ways to serve meals in either reusable or the most eco-friendly containers that are disposable that I can find. And I've actually shared all of those tools, tips and tricks over in my free PDF resource, tools, tips and tricks to help make your field meals a little less stressful. So I have left the link for you to grab that resource 
in the show notes today, or you can head on over to wildrosefarmer.com and look up the field meal guide. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Suzette. Hello, Suzette. Welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today. Caitlin, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. For my listeners who are unfamiliar with you, Suzette, tell us about yourself, who you are, and where you're from. So my name is Suzette Chomet. I live in Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area. I am the founder of Food Indie, which is all about food independence. And I am the co-host of the Positively Green podcast. My family of origin is from Haiti and uh, migrated here to the United States in the 1960s. So I'm the very first born in the United States and grew up in this area and, and have come to really love it here. Suzette, what are some of your first memories when it comes to food from your family of origin? Growing up, did you grow your own food or was it something that just came from a grocery store? Food has been a really big part of our lives. I'm a fourth generation backyard farmer. My mom always grew something in our backyard. It wasn't necessarily for sustenance. For her, it looked like it was more about a relaxation practice for her. But I remember being three years old and strawberries growing in the backyard. And I just recently told her that her yield was low because I used to eat the green strawberries. <laughs> I just couldn't wait. But I spent a lot of time with my mom in the garden, though she wasn't directly showing me how to garden. It was always part of my life. My sisters are both urban gardeners as well. And we all love to cook. So gardening and doing the farm to fork practice has been a part of our lives forever. I mean, before farm to fork was a thing and people talked about it that way, we were doing it. Right. That's so funny. I'm sure your mom was wondering why she didn't have enough berries at the end of the season to make jam or anything. Yeah, she did. <laughs> she did. And she just said, really? that That's why that was going on? I said, yeah. She said, All this time I thought it was the deer. Nope. <laughs> Three-year-old. It was little Suzette <laughs> eating green strawberries. That's right. <laughs> that is so great. Well, and tell us now about your current growing space, where you are, and what you're able to produce from your urban farm. Mm -hmm. So I have a small backyard space, probably about an eighth of an acre. And I have four garden beds, raised beds, and then I have a flower garden. So my raised beds are each four by five feet. And I use the square foot gardening method. So I divide my beds into square feet and then plant nine different plants in each square. So in square foot, there are nine plants that are complementary plants. Or, uh, that There are nine plants that are complementary to one another, and they grow in this kind of stacking method. Because with such little space here, I have to do as much as I can to use it efficiently. And because we're also in a drought, if I can water all plants at once rather than having multiple beds and spaces, it limits the water that I have to use um, to water the plants. Yeah. 
I love the square foot method. That's actually what I do in my own garden, in my own garden boxes. I got into gardening, I would say pre-pandemic. I like dabbled in it. I hadn't grown anything before. Growing up, we had a garden that was very small. And I think my mom only did it for maybe like one or two seasons before she got bored of it or because of the neighborhood cats would use it. And she was just out of it, right? She was very much more of a plant and flower gardener, which is, you know, always had a beautiful yard. But I love it because you can produce, like you said, so much food in such a small space. And for me, I do have the space to grow in the ground and things, but for weeding and everything, it is much nicer to have that kind of square space. And, you know, the amount of food that you can produce with this method of gardening is insane. Yeah, it really is. You don't need a lot of space to produce a lot of food. You know, we do a lot of nutrient dense foods like Swiss chard, kale. We do a lot of herbs and having them working all together and then being able to create a meal out of this one square is amazing. So I highly recommend it to others who have small spaces. And even if you have a large space, but you want to have your edible garden, it's a great method to use. Yeah, for sure. You also do a lot of work with succulents, actually. <laughs> and so our friend Kelsey Jorison Olison has told me all about your succulents and I've seen them online and everything. And we're both envious because I think we're both succulent killers. So tell us more <laughs> about your succulents that you're able to produce. Yeah. So I started out my gardening journey where I really got into it with succulents. And part of it was because I didn't have, I didn't have the confidence to grow edible foods yet or edible plants yet. I thought that I would easily kill them because I had this one experience 20 years ago where I planted a potato and it was growing really well. And then one day, all of these caterpillars just swooped in and ate the entire plant all the way down to the bottom. And so I thought, all right, that's it. I'm not doing any more edible plants. I'm just going to go to succulents. And succulents are great because you can take a cutting or even a piece that falls off and it will root. And you don't really have to do much to them. The key to succulents is watering them a lot, but not often. So they love to have a good amount of water, but, you know, once every three weeks. So that is how I care for my succulents. And I've got like 60 varieties of them. I kind of went crazy a few years ago, just asking people for cuttings. And I would write notes to my neighbors if I saw a beautiful succulent in their landscaping. And if I didn't know them, I would just send them a note and say, hey, do you mind if I take a cutting? And every single time it would work. It was a really fun way of getting to know other neighbors and to talk to them about their gardens. And, you know, now I've got all of these succulents and I'm going to be posting a video pretty soon about uh, about them because I've been posting so much about the edible garden that I've been neglecting my poor succulents. But I I have lots of fun ones. And yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that because I don't show them very often. So the fact that you know that is really great. Yeah, no, it's it's so funny. And that is such great advice. They like a lot of water, but not often. 
I'm going to keep that note in my mind for the next time I do my walk around with the watering can and say, no, stop watering that. Yeah. They like to get really dry. They want to be dry before they, they get watered again. And, you know, succulents can go a very long time without water and they will change their shape and they'll get like, they, they look more wrinkly and kind of malnourished without water, but they'll survive. You'd, you'd give them a little bit. Well, no, I just said give them a lot. So you give them a lot of water when they look like that. And then you just leave them alone and, you know, don't, don't give them more. Yeah. Well, and those seem obviously like perfect plants for your area for the amount of drought that you've been experiencing. So can you talk to us? 2021 was a very hot year for a lot of folks. So can you talk to us about how that drought affected you and your area? Yeah. So as I said, I'm from Northern California and we have had a drought for the last seven years. So what that means is that we have a lot of restrictions, a lot of water restrictions. We're not able to use as much. Well, we, you know, we're, it's recommended that we don't use as much. There are people like my next door neighbor who turn on their water watering system every single morning at eight o'clock and it drives me bananas. But I digress. The last seven years have been really difficult because we get rain probably two or three times a year. And that's not necessarily heavy rain. And if you've ever been to the Bay Area, you know that our rain can be sometimes just like heavy fog. So it's just a trickle for a long period of time. But we don't get torrential rains here. What that's done over time is created a lot of dry trees, brush in all of the hills around the Bay Area. And that's what's led to all of these big fires that we've had in the past several years. And they've become the norm. It's not if, it's when and where. Where will the fire hit next? So fire season generally begins in late summer and goes through probably October, November, but it's gotten longer. So it starts around June now. And it's scary because... You never know what's going to set the fire off. It could be a barbecue pit that somebody left, or it could be a match thrown out of a window. And And the acreage that these fires take out, it's just incredible. We had something like 2 million acres burned last year in the state of California. It's, it's intense. But what that does is it makes me and a lot of other people very aware of how we use our water. So for example, when I take a shower, I turn on the shower like anybody else and I let the water run into a bucket. For each shower that I take, it's four gallons of water that it takes to heat up the water to get to the point where I get into the shower. So there are four of us who live here, my husband, two kids. And so for each day, that's 16 gallons of water that we then use to water our garden. So I don't know when the last time was that I turned on the hose. It's been a while because we just use that water. But that means we're hand watering everything. And by hand watering, I mean, you know, taking out a watering can and going to each individual plant and watering it directly. And I would say that we use probably 
five gallons a day to do the hand watering. But that also means that many of the plants that are underground that we don't see don't get watered. And so when it rains, that's when those plants can emerge and then we can start watering them because we know that they're there. But it's a really deliberate thing that we have to do with conserving water around here, even washing clothes. You know, it's recommended that we do it overnight so that it's conserving both water and electricity because in California, you know, we're really energy conscious too. So the drought plays a huge role in how I can garden. So I don't do any water intensive plants. So I won't plant any kind of melons. I don't do anything that is going to require too much, even like celery. I don't plant celery. Things that have a lot of water in them, I just don't do. I plant things like lettuce, Swiss chard, onions, garlic, herbs. And they make great garden plants for sure. But I I wish I could plant things that were a little bit more juicy. I mean, I do do my tomatoes every year, but not the big ones. I do cherry tomatoes instead of like the big heirloom tomatoes because they require less water. Those ones are my favorite anyways. Yeah, they're tasty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's so interesting because I think there are people who kind of other themselves from these areas that have these major wildfires. For us, we're located in Southern Alberta. So it's very rare that we'll have a fire that would be so out of control. It's not to say that there aren't fires that happen here that spread very quickly because we're kind of flat and dry. But the fires that are happening on the West Coast in British Columbia and in California and Washington, it's affecting how we grow our crops here because around the time that this fire season will start is, you know, end of July, August or so, that smoke will come to our area and settle in which actually affects the ripening of our crops here. It will slow everything down. And depending on, you know, how hot it is here, if it's going to rain, we've gotten snow in September that has, you know, landed nicely on the crop that's still standing up. All of these fires and all of these major weather events, they affect everybody. And it doesn't matter where you live in, in what country, honestly. So, to hear that you are using the water the way that you are is really inspiring to me. And I know it is to a lot of other people because it is serious and it's going to take, I know it can feel really heavy a lot of times to hear all of these things and you think, oh, what can I do? It takes people like you doing one thing and showing other people those things and hopefully inspiring them to conserve water in different ways or grow their own food or whatever it is. Yeah, thanks for saying that. You know, climate change is on my mind a lot. And I think sometimes people don't want to hear the words climate change because it's attached to so many other ideas and ideals. But climate is three things. It's temperature, sun, and rainfall. And As those things are changing, I mean, when we're talking about the drought and we're not getting very much rainfall here, we have to think differently about how we're going to get food. The fact is that the less it rains, the less possible it is to grow food. And California is an agricultural state. So we have a lot of water that's being diverted from the Sierras to the Central Valley where we grow a lot of food. And what that means is that 
everyday backyard gardeners may have to use water less and less, but, but it doesn't mean that we can't garden. And so I hope that with my platform, I can show people how to do more with less and to think much more consciously about how weather is affecting where they live. Because we're all being, being impacted, as you said, whether it's flooding or snowstorms or blizzards or, you know, hurricanes or wildfires. We're all impacted some way and we all need to eat. We all need to eat. And we may not be able to have that food shipped in. I mean, look at the supply, the supply chain issues that we have right now. We are at the first time in a very long time that I can remember at a place where when we go to the grocery store, the things that we ordinarily would buy are not available. They're stuck somewhere on a ship or they're no longer manufacturing that thing or it's taken a long time and, you know, it rotted in a ship somewhere. And so we are facing really different times right now. And so I do encourage people to plant something, anything, because you don't have to plant your whole meal. But let's say I have something over here, I've got greens over here, and then my next door neighbor has tomatoes, and then my, their neighbor has, you know, flowers. We can work collectively to share what we have. And this may be what we have to do in an emergency. I know that if we have a fire that's nearby here, the first people I'm going to check on or see are my neighbors. They're the ones who are going to be in the same kind of emergency that I'm in. And so how can we think differently about working together with our neighbors, with our community to, to ensure that we make it through these troubling times? And so I think a lot about climate on a daily basis because these fires are something that we have to plan for six months out of the year. So, you know, having a go bag by the front door, making sure that we have all of our papers in a place so that if we ever have to run, we can just grab the box of things. Actually, it's right behind me. There's my box of papers <laughs> just, just in case I ever need to run out of the house. And you mentioned earlier about the smoke traveling. We had a day two years ago where there was a huge wildfire probably 100 miles from here. And we woke up in the morning and the sky was completely orange. You may have seen pictures of it online. And if you haven't, do a Google search of San Francisco Bay Area Orange Day. And you'll see this strange orange color because it was the smoke and the fog mixed together. It was the scariest moment for so many of us because we thought, is this is this what the last day is going to look like? If you look at those pictures online, it will shock you. We were under that for, I don't know, six or seven hours. Scary stuff. But I think more than anything, I want us to get out of being fearful of what the future is going to bring because it's going to happen. Whatever it is, is going to happen. But we can make small changes now that will help improve our chances of survival if we just minimize our demand for things and think differently about how we use the resources that we have. Well, and I think 
you know, the last couple of years has been so up and down and touch and go for so many things. But some of the things that still stayed the same was supply chain management issues. Those seem to not have resolved themselves. I think one of the best things that has come out of all of this is the people's interest in things like where their food comes from, supporting more local food, growing more local food. And like you said, you use your platforms to share how really accessible it is to grow your own food. And I want to share my personal story here, Suzette. You have shown me so many things that I just had no idea about. And one of the things is taking food that you've already had in your home and whether it's almost bad or kind of bad and repurposing that to do so many incredible things. (laughs) One of them is vermicomposting, which we're going to jump into, but I want to even have my personal thing here that you've inspired me to do. I've seen on your social media platforms taking things like old lettuce butts or onions who have the sprouts and all of these things and placing them in water and giving them an entire new life. So I, I let you know before we hit record, but right now in my windowsill, I have onions that were going to have the little sprout on top and they are currently sitting just in a little dish of water. And those are going to be the onions that I plant in my garden this year, instead of throwing them in the compost, which I would have done. 10 years ago, I would not have thrown it in the compost. It would have gone in the garbage. But now, like just these little things, now that I know these things, that I can do these things, I want to do these things. So thank you for showing me that. (laughs) Thanks for saying that. That is one of my favorite things to do is to sprout new food from food scraps. So, you know, it can either be something that's going bad, like onions or garlic that you can sprout or like a sweet potato. So I also like to cut off the bottoms of onions, like green onions. You always cut away the little root part and toss it out, but you can regrow onions from that. And I I did that this year with a lot of different types of green onions. There were some big ones and some small ones. And I put them in water and you just put a little bit of water at the bottom of a cup, the onion bottoms in there. And in a few days you have new onions growing. And then you put them in the ground after, I don't know, four or five weeks, and then you grow brand new onions. And what's great about that is that you can cut off the green parts and leave the bulb in the ground and you'll continue to grow onions. So you don't even have to pull the whole onion out of the ground for it to keep growing and for you to use it. For sure. You would think that would be common knowledge, but I myself had absolutely no idea that this is what you could do. Even my husband was like, what are you doing with these onions? I was like, "Uh, my friend Suzette uh, told me if I put these in water, (laughs) I can grow new onions and that's what's happening. So (laughs) I love it. I love it. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. So back to vermicomposting, this is something that I'm really excited slash being really nerdy about when we're talking about this and just another way to use your food scraps and repurpose. So you are quite the vermicomposter. So for the (laughs) listeners who are unfamiliar with what that is, what is vermicomposting? Vermicomposting is very simply using worms to compost your food versus the method where you mix brown and your food, like so brown, like dried leaves or paper 
and your food and then just let it do its composting thing naturally, um, worms speed up the process by a lot. So if it would take, you know, a year for food to break down normally, worms can do it in like four months. It's really fast. So if somebody was interested in starting vermicomposting, how do they go about setting up a system to be a worm farmer? So first of all, let me say I absolutely love worm farming. It's it's something that I never thought I would get into. It's a little nerdy, as you said, because it's it's so much about the science of it all. But the the worms that I use are red wiggler worms, red wiggler worms. And I got them from a friend of mine who had a worm bin in her backyard. So what you need is a plastic bin. And you know, I don't like plastic. This is how you got to do the worm bin, either that or wood, and then replace that every few years. But we can talk about that a little bit later. You have a multi-tiered plastic bin that has holes in it. So you can also do this with five gallon buckets, drill some holes in the bottom. And I have some pictures of this on my website and and on my YouTube channel. You can find a demo there. So the worms are put together with your food. And I like to use shredded paper from my office. So I'm always shredding paper. I take that shredded paper. I put it in with the food that we have, you know, from food waste. So I'm talking about like peels and, you know, not pits usually because pits will grow new food inside your compost bin. I just learned that recently. I'll tell you about that too. But you combine your food waste with the paper, put the worms in there, and then they start going to work. I have discovered a couple of things. So worms have taste buds on the outside of their bodies. So they love sweet things. And I I was playing around with a few things. They love mango seeds. So we eat a lot of mangoes. I put them in there. And then, you know, the mangoes are covered in worms by the next day because they absolutely love that flavor. They also really like rice and beans. (laughs) So you get to know the kinds of foods that your worms will eat very fast and transform. And they make this beautiful compost that you can just, you sift the the worms out or I, you know, I usually just pick them out with my hands. Some people are not into worms and that's okay. You just buy one of these sifters. That's also like a a plastic sieve and you just put the, the compost in there. You shake out the worms, you put them back into the bin. And then I like to mix the compost, the vermicompost, one to three with with garden soil. So I will replant plants in that or I will spread it around the garden. It just depends on what's needed at the time. So a, a starter kit would be composting worms, some food, and some shredded paper. Is there anything that your worms or all worms that you shouldn't feed them? What do they not like? Yeah, I avoid citrus. So they like citrus, but citrus attracts fruit flies. So no lemons, no oranges. I don't put onions in the bin either. It gets a little too acidic in there. You might think that worms like to be in a squishy space. They don't. They prefer to be in a little bit drier of a space. So you don't want to let your compost ever get too wet because it gets kind of icky and sticky. And that's when it starts to smell. People ask me all the time, does compost smell bad? It doesn't. But if it does, 
it means that something's out of balance. So I just throw more shredded paper in there and within 48 hours, it's resolved. But worms do keep the compost from getting smelly like that because they're constantly processing your food. I just find it so interesting that they can do so much in relatively a short amount of time. So on Mm -hmm. average, would you say how often are you able to use the compost and the worm castings in your garden or to repot something? So there are two parts of the compost. There's the solid, which is the worm castings. And then there's the, what I call worm juice. It's not really called worm juice, but you know, compost tea for those who don't like worm juice. (laughs) And the worm juice comes out of the bin through a spigot. And I use that to water my plants about once a month. And I can get that out just by spraying some water or pouring some water over the bin and then it comes out. And I usually collect about two gallons and then spread that around the, the garden. In terms of the solid, I put that on my plants using the sheet mulching method where I don't dig around my plants. I just add another layer of compost right on top. So the way that I do it is I put a layer of cardboard down, then hay, then soil, then compost, then cardboard, hay, soil, compost. And I continue to to do that throughout the year. And it, it keeps the moisture in the plants much more than if I were to dig and add the compost in a different way. So I just layer it on probably every three months. And my plants love it. And you can see right away how much the plants love it. Like they get really green and shiny. They look really healthy. And the way that I look at it is the more nutrients we have in the foods that we grow for ourselves, the healthier that we'll will be. Like we won't need to have as much food. So I noticed that if I have a really nice salad from the garden, I might not eat another meal for several hours because it's just got so much nutrition in it. And and that does come from the compost and it 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 coming from the food that I already had in my house, right? So we've got this circular system. So all the food waste that comes from the food that I've cooked from the garden is going into the compost bin. The worms break it down. Then I get the compost from that in the compost tea. I feed the plants that are in the garden and then I harvest those. And so it's it's this circular system that we've built here to minimize how much we have to bring in from the outside. So I don't have to buy fertilizer anymore. I don't buy it. I don't need it because the compost does all of what I need it to do. Through your worm farming journey, has there been any things that have either gone awry for you or if somebody is interested in starting, what are some of your greatest pieces of advice for them? Okay. So I have killed off my worms three times, twice through drowning, once through extreme heat. So the the drowning was because the worm bin was under a place that had a continuous water drip during the rain. And, you know, because like I said earlier, we don't get rain that often. It wasn't even something that I knew was a problem until we had a big rainstorm. And then I went outside and I smelled this smell and I went to the worm bin and they were all dead. I was devastated. <laughs> devastated. But I had put some of the worms in a different bin 
So I just transferred some of those worms from that bin back to the worm bin and restarted the, the population again. And they reproduced pretty quickly. The time when it got really hot was during one of these fire seasons. And we had a stay indoors order because of all of the smoke. So needless to say, I didn't check on the worms that were outside. And when I came back, again, the smell, but this time it was worm stew. It was so gross. It was like, you know, they had slowly, slowly stewed in the worm bin for days. I, you know, I'm laughing now, but in the moment I was just like, no, I, I, I was, I was again, devastated. But what I've learned is that worms do come back. They're a lot more resilient than you might imagine. And one of their favorite things to have is coffee. I mean, they reproduce like crazy when they have coffee. I mean, could you imagine being a small worm and having a, an espresso? You know, they're just mating all the time in the, in the worm bin when they've got some coffee. So whenever I need to increase the population, I just give them some extra coffee grounds and, you know, I have more worms very soon. <laughs> well, it sounds like I have a lot in common with worms. So. <laughs> Oh, that's so great. Well, you had mentioned, you know, with vermicomposting, you need the plastic container. And if anybody knows you, Suzette, you are the number one hater of (laughs) unnecessary plastic. So I am. (laughs) I'm going to give you the platform to spill the tea on all things plastic hate. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it it actually started when my kids were little. For my daughter's first birthday, I got a lot of plastic gifts. I couldn't believe how many plastic things came my way. All of the baby stuff was just like plastic toys and all, and all kinds of things that I just was not happy about. And it came to my attention when I needed to get rid of them. Like when she was no longer using these toys, I was trying to figure out how to get rid of them. And I asked for all subsequent birthdays to please not give any plastic gifts. And people were so creative. I mean, first they were receptive, but like still to this day, and she's 13, they don't get plastic gifts or my daughter doesn't get any plastic gifts. And So she started getting things like books and puzzles and games and things that were a lot more creative. People who were giving gifts were a lot more deliberate about what they gave us. And then it morphed into, well, how is plastic coming into my home in other ways? And it was everywhere. It was everywhere, whether it was saran wrap or the wrap on the outside of the package or, you know, when I was ordering from Amazon, because I don't order from Amazon anymore, because of all of the plastic and the waste that is produced by the company with all of the trucks and all of that. But again, I digress. <laughs> but I just started noticing where plastic was in my home and asked myself the question, where does this go? Like, if I'm throwing it away, where is it going? And I started to do more research and saw that plastics in landfill were sitting there for four or 500 years. Like that is what's expected. And I started imagining all of the Ziploc bags I've used, all of the containers I've used and thought, I don't, I don't want to contribute to this problem anymore. Even if I am the only one doing this, 
I don't want to continue to be part of the problem. If anything, I want to come up with some, some, some solutions. So every plastic container that would come into my house, I wanted to reuse it at least twice. That was my commitment. Everything that comes in, make sure I can use it in one way or another, even if it wasn't the same way that it came to me. But I wanted to make sure that it had a longer life than just what it was intended for. So then I started thinking about plastic grocery bags and did some research there and and found out that each bag is only used for 20 minutes on average. We get these plastic bags in the grocery store. We bring them home. We put the groceries away. And then usually we stick it in the plastic bag drawer because we all have a plastic bag drawer. Even I have a plastic bag drawer where I just, I can't get rid of all this plastic. And, and it bothers me that the plastics industry is continuing to flood our market with plastic because they can. And, you know, plastic is part of the petroleum industry and it comes directly from big oil and gas. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's my small way of deciding not to do it anymore. And have I succeeded in avoiding all plastic? Absolutely not. I can't, it's everywhere, but can I do the best I can to minimize how much of it comes into my house? And I do. So when I go grocery shopping, I always go for the items that are loose, like the loose produce, you know, things that you can pick up one by one rather than going for the plastic bags or the netting. So I avoid plastic bags and netting. I bring my own produce bags with me to the market. And I've got a post about that too. And just like, what are the bags that I bring? How do I do my bulk shopping? So you can find that on my TikTok at Food Indie. That's F-O-O-I-N-D-Y. I'll tell you more about that later. (laughs) And I shop for fresh vegetables or fruit. Um, Like I said, loose. If I'm buying anything in cans or jars, I always go for the tin cans because they are recyclable and they are biodegradable. They will rust over time. Or glass. I don't pick up the plastic jars. I avoid them like the plague. (laughs) I minimize how much processed food I buy. So I avoid the middle aisles altogether because that's where the most unhealthy food is and where the most plastic containers and bags are. Even the frozen foods, like I don't buy frozen vegetables, I buy them in cans instead. So little changes like that I made. And and so I I won't say that I hate plastic. I just avoid it a lot. That's a nicer <laughs> way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, in my daily life. And I make it a, a consistent theme in my life is to avoid plastic at every turn if I can. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to saying like, there's so many things that are outside of our control that are so much bigger than us. But I honestly think, and maybe I'm too much of an optimist, that if we just do and adopt these smaller habits within our daily lives, maybe we can inspire other people to do those things. And I know you have inspired me to look at things differently. And like you said, just make those small changes within your home. And, you know, at the end of the day, is it going to make the biggest difference? 
Maybe not. There's still going to be plastic that comes in no matter what. But let me tell you, my plastic bags get used way more than 20 minutes and way more than however many times are probably acceptable. My poor husband has gotten his poor lunch in these bags that have so many holes in them. I'm sure I've lost (laughs) a fork bringing them to the field. So yeah, that's great. That's great. I mean, we need to be using them. And and I, I saw on the side of a Target bag once. This bag is intended to be reused 250 times. When I saw that, I was like, what? Who actually uses these bags 250 times? Are we for the most part? I mean, I, I hear that you might be, which is great. You're an inspiration <laughs> to me. But but how are people using them? I mean, I know folks use them for garbage. You know, they put them as garbage liners and and then they throw them into the trash. But could we really begin to use these bags more so that we don't have to place demand on the system. And again, it's twofold, right? It's the individual work that we have to do, but there's a lot of policy work that we have to do. We really do need to go after these corporations. I don't know if you've heard of extended producer responsibility, but it is about making them responsible for their own waste. The companies that produce detergent, for example, they're the ones who create these plastic jugs, not us, yet we're the ones who are supposed to figure out how to recycle them. And so extended producer responsibility is about saying, wait, you created this, you need to take care of it. So it's not one or the other. It's definitely both. Absolutely. Absolutely. Growers have a lot to consider when it comes to storing grain. Are you getting the most out of your on-farm grain storage? Could an aeration model help to better determine fan, heater, or dryer needs? And what is the ROI if you installed a bin manager system to remote monitor and control in-bin grain conditioning? At AGI, we want you to ask the tough questions about how Bin Manager allows growers like you to know exactly what is happening inside your bins without climbing a ladder or stairs, or how you can benefit from remotely monitoring your grain temperature and moisture from a smartphone, or how fully automated fans and heaters can provide peace of mind all season long. Contact an AGI representative today for a free on-farm smart storage assessment. Find AGI Bin Manager at aggrowth.com digital. That's aggrowth.com digital. I want to talk to you about food sovereignty, as I know this is something that is very near and dear to your heart. Talk to us about food sovereignty, what it means to you, and your mission to promote it. I'm going to go far to come near. Um, you know, this this all started when I was in grad school at Tulane School of Public Health 20 years ago. And I was part of a program called the Meatless Monday. I was a Meatless Monday scholar through Johns Hopkins University. It was a program where, you know, you teach people about going meat-free on Mondays. And one of my roles was to teach middle school kids about nutrition and what it meant to do their grocery shopping, how do they, how do their parents cook, you know, like we were talking about all kinds of things. And what came out of that project was that kids are 
more influential in their household's buying habits than parents are. Because we were coming at it from the perspective of if your parents had this information, you know, would they do this differently? But what we learned was that the kids are the ones who kind of dictate how food is eaten in the house. I mean, think about a toddler who is saying, no, they're not going to eat something that's on their plate. They, they throw a fit and parents will go out of their way to make sure that that toddler has what they want so they can avoid those fits from happening too often. And that continues over time. You know, if you have a kid who's in your back seat who's like, mom, I want to go to McDonald's and they keep saying it over and over and over, eventually mom is going to go, all right. Well, the same thing is for healthy foods. When kids tell their parents, I really want to have broccoli for dinner or I really, you know, want to have tomatoes or I learned at school that you can eat nasturtiums. Parents are like, wait, really? And they learn from their kids and that led me to look at how we can do more education in schools to get kids to understand more about their food. And got involved in some schoolyard programs. Now, because I'm in public health, I don't install gardens. Like I, I do the research on how gardens will impact kids positively or negatively. It's usually positively. There's you know, the negative things are more around the politics and placement of gardens and, you know, if you're going to take up asphalt and who has to be involved in that process. But the negative impacts of gardens are not related to the education that the kids are getting. And, and over time, I started to see schoolyards as prime places for garden space, not only to grow food, but to allow people and children specifically to interact with green space. And that evolved into seeing how many kids were on these school lunch programs and the school lunches were not very good, whether it was nutritionally not very good or they didn't taste very good. And this is what we were making kids eat still. I mean, this is what school lunch is really is not the most not the most healthy food but when you had gardens that are that are run by local there is a garden that was started in berkeley by a local chef and she funded this whole garden that now they have farm to fork foods in this middle school that's nearby and the kids now can eat from the school garden now, this is an area where you have an investor who came in and said, plant all of these things and the children will benefit from our investment here. But not all of, not all kids have that access. Not all of our schools are being funded for some beautiful community garden that then can be harvested and then made into nutritious food for them. And because of that, it got me thinking about, well, what if every single household had just a small little garden, what would that look like if everybody could claim to make or to, to grow their own food? What if everybody could take back the power of growing their own food, even on a small scale, but could see the results and the fruits of their labor? How empowering would that be to communities who might be living in food deserts? 
And food deserts, you know, for me, I have a really, I have a very strong feeling about food deserts because it's really food apartheid. These are neighborhoods that were planned by people who decided that there would not be grocery stores in a particular neighborhood, but instead convenience stores that had chips and cigarettes and alcohol and candy and junk. And it was planned. I mean, let's, let's call it spade a spade. This is not by accident that people live in poverty and that people live without food access. So because that's a larger issue that needs to be addressed, what I thought again is what are some small scale solutions that we can offer to people who live in poorer areas? What if they could grow a garden inside their apartment? What if their neighbor was also growing a garden in their apartment? So I started doing research on the kinds of things that you can grow indoors. You can even grow citrus indoors. You just have to have a sunny window. And so my perspective is that when you have vulnerable populations who want to be just as healthy as the wealthy, and you know we can talk about what healthy actually means in all of these contexts, but that's probably for another show. But people want the best for their children, no matter who they are, no matter what socioeconomic status they're part of. They want to be able to eat regularly. They want to be able to eat meals that will make them feel healthier. And I want to provide ways that that can happen, even if it means one salad a week, but but increasing the amount of access that they have to nutrient-dense foods. And so food sovereignty is a larger movement that I am interested in learning more about and part of, but I'm looking at this really at an individual scale and a family scale and a, and a community scale. And how that fits into the larger context is, you know, where I want to do more of my own networking and in growing. But that is how food sovereignty even got on to my radar is really thinking about how we can improve health for individuals and families every day. There were so many good tidbits in there that could be their own podcast episodes. (laughs) And I would love to have you come back on and we can wax poetic about all of those things. I'd love to. One of the things that I appreciate so much about you, Suzette, is your ability to break these things down and break it down step by step and walk it back of how doing these things or breaking it down to educating children is a way forward and it is a way to move forward of helping your community and helping the wider audience. I'm up here in Canada and I've learned so many things from you, from all of the things you've been able to walk back to and take it step by step and say, how can we do things that will affect not only our ourselves and our personal health, how it will affect our families, how will it com- uh, affect our community and how will it affect our world? So I want to say thank you from me to you because I know how much you have helped me. For people who are interested in learning more about food sovereignty and what they can do. What are some great resources or information that you can share with them of 
how do you start? How do you get your feet wet into this movement? So I would say that the, the best thing is to start right where you are. Find out what's happening in your local community about food sovereignty and see who's growing food in an independent way. There are lots of people all around who are growing food on a small scale or if you want to do something larger, like if you're a landowner, I say share your space. <laughs> if you have land, if you've got a lot of land and you can offer an acre or two acres to someone who doesn't have land, allow them to grow something help them help them get on their feet on their growing path because you you know there are a lot of people who own land who don't necessarily share it and we've got to stop that cuz there's enough for everybody you know and the more that we can build these networks with one another i think it benefits everyone in the long run also i say if you're doing this at home, start small with soil. Your soil is going to be the most important thing to growing, not seeds, not even sunlight, but your soil being super healthy. And that's, again, why I like to compost with worms, because it's a quick way of getting your soil to be healthy. So you do some soil testing, find out what kinds of soil you have in your area whether it's in your pots in the house or if it's in your garden outside and then build from there. There are larger food sovereignty movements. I would just do a quick Google search to find what really resonates with you, what speaks to you, but do something, you know, you can do something, anything, something small, something big, but this is a, a, a new time where lots of things are happening and the people really do have to be the ones to make the changes. We can't rely just on politicians. I mean, like, we can't. <laughs> and so we gotta, we gotta take some of this on ourselves and create a movement, even if it's a small one. Absolutely. Absolutely. <sighs> you are a wealth of knowledge. And I am so grateful for your time today and sharing that all with us and can't thank you enough. My last question for you, Suzette, is what is the most rewarding part about being an urban grower for you? The most rewarding part is what you spoke to earlier. When I see that the tips I've offered are usable and used by other people and they feel inspired to do more. If I can just give one tidbit of information that helps someone on their food journey, that is, it's amazing to me. So I love to hear when, when I've given something to someone that they can then use and make it their own. And I have no doubt that you have inspired a few people today here. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for saying that. Thanks, Caitlin, for having me. For the listeners who would like to connect with you and your work after the show, where can they find you online? You can find me in a few places. I'm on Instagram at reduce, reuse, Suze. Oh, and that, let me spell that out. Reduce, R-U-D-U-C-E, reuse, R-E-U-S-E, Suze, S-U-Z-E. And at the Positively Green podcast, also on Instagram, you can find my demo videos on TikTok. That's where I have the most followers. And that's at Food Indie. 
food, F-O-O-D-I-N-D-Y, and that stands for food independence. I'm also on Pinterest and YouTube under Food Indy. So find me in all those places, follow me, save my videos, share them. I really want to get the word out to as many people as possible about how each of you can be food independent. There's so much, so much there, so much to learn. And I'm, I'm here for all of your questions. So yeah, send me some questions too. I'm here for it. Yeah, I will be sure to share all of those links as well as other resources that you've mentioned here today in the show notes so people can find you and connect with you. That's right. Of course, there's show notes, right? Like You know this. You're a podcaster. <laughs> I know this. I know this. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, we it's, it's nice to say these things out loud for, you know, the people who don't know about show notes, right? So. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of behind the scenes work that happens with podcasts. Oh, there sure is. <laughs> yeah, there sure yeah. is. Well, yeah. thank you again so much for sharing your story and your wisdom with us here today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman Podcast, a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network. The Rural Woman Podcast is more than just a podcast. We are a community. A huge thank you to the Rural Woman Podcast team, audio editor Max Hofer, and admin support from Kim and Co. Online. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producers, Sarah Reedner from Happiness by the Acre and Carrie Munven from Laystone Farms. To learn how you can become a Patreon executive producer or other ways to financially support the show, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more. Be sure to hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast to get the latest episodes directly on your playlist. And if you are loving the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that accepts ratings and reviews. You can connect with us on social media at The Rural Woman Podcast and with me at Wild Rose Farmer. One of the best ways you can support the show is by sharing it. Send this episode to a friend or share on your social media. Let's strengthen and amplify the voices of women in agriculture together. Until next time, my friend, keep sharing your story. Your story.